Welcome to Crescent City Crime, dear listeners. I'm Tracy. I'm Brian. And as always, we want to start off by thanking everybody who makes time to listen to us. We really appreciate your support. And of course, please tell a friend. Yes, tell tell a friend. Tell an enemy. Tell your mother, your daughter, your your dog too. Cousins, yes, your cats. Your lizards, if you have them, or pet spiders or snakes. Yes, our dogs and our cats love listening to us. And I'm sure your dogs and your cats will love listening to us as well. Thank you. Sorry, but the dogs don't really listen to you. They don't? (laughs) (laughs) Not our dogs. They listen to me, but not really to you. But that's another topic for another time. But, you know, and here's an extra big thank you to people who are not in America who do listen to our podcast. You are a small member. You are a small number of our audience. But I'm still tickled over the fact that people listen to us in different countries. Me too, and I really appreciate that. Uh, we're, you know, we're all people. We're all human beings, and we all want to be loved, and we all want to enjoy life, and and we, uh, you know, we understand that. We yes. understand that very well, and uh, you know, we love we love all good people everywhere in the world, wherever wherever they're found. Yes. And, you know, when this episode drops, it's going to officially be your birthday month, Brian. So, happy birthday from me to you. And because it is your birthday month, I, during, when we, when we film, listen to me, when we record our Coffee Talk episode, I would like to just hand over the mic to you and you can enlighten or entertain people with a few stories from your life. Oh, that sounds like fun. I'll probably have to. I've got quite a few stories left to uh, think of a few. Yeah, I'll have to think of a few. Yeah. Just jot down a couple of things, and, and then I'll know. Uh, <laughs> then I'll know what to talk about. Yeah, I, I, I'm very excited for that. I think you really do have good stories. You have a good uh, chunk of life experience. Yeah. Yes, I've had a an interesting life, which of course is it's good and, and bad. But I'd like to think overall it's it's good. Well, you've not been to jail. True. Yes. Mm-hmm. I've worked in one though. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, what I'm uh, saying is that you you were not on the wrong end of the law. Yes, for, fortune, fortune. Which I would say puts you ahead of a lot of people. If you manage, if, if people, if you manage to stay out of jail for a good chunk of your life, um, in you know, then I think you're just ahead of the game. I do agree. And we were now in light of today's episode because we are going to be talking about the battle that was desegregating the New Orleans school system, Brian. But you've recently worked on a movie regarding this and i believe we've mentioned it once or twice on the podcast but you want to refresh everybody's memories the movie is called the walk it's not the first movie called the walk uh there's a 2015 movie called the walk which is about an entirely different thing but this one is uh this one came out in 19 wait 19 okay it's a period <laughs> piece from 1974 oh okay uh, supposed to be, it's filmed in New Orleans, but it's supposed, the location's supposed to be South Boston. Right. And in that, I'm a, uh, I'm a Southie. And 
you know, pretty much, I do have an Irish look to me, and that's one of the reasons why I was cast to be a Southie in this movie. Uh, I'm probably two different characters because I'm in the, I'm in the protest scenes. Um, believe it or not, I still haven't watched the movie yet, but I was put, I was pushed around by Terrence Howard by, for a few takes on, you know, a green screen, screen filming day inside an old warehouse that's now a soundstage of the warehouse district. Um, but that was, that was a lot of fun. And I, you know, of course I got to talk to Terrence Howard as we were doing this because, you know, I turn around, I get in his face and he right. shows me out the way. And, uh, there's a scene where I'm holding up, uh, now keep in mind, anyone, you, you see this movie, there's a bunch of us holding up some very vile and offensive protest signs, uh, that, you know, yes, we're depicted as bigots, but someone had to play these people in but the first place. Just also, like that's what really happened. Yes, you had people protesting who held up signs that said ugly things, and you had people say ugly things as well. And, we we did, and there know. was a couple of onlookers one day who marched onto our set and yelled at us, and one of the uh, a couple of the grips who who were black actually, I mean, got in their faces as they were telling them this is a movie, back off. And someone else had to go wake up the, uh, I believe it was a levy district officer who was napping in his car, oh. who was supposed to catch this type of stuff and explain these kinds of things and keep people off the set. Right. You know, and of course, I felt slightly embarrassed because I was holding up a one of these protest signs. I was momentarily embarrassed because there was a couple of people who were giving me these dagger looks. Right. Uh, right. Thinking, uh, Think, thinking that, that this was something else and not a movie. Yeah. Like, like imagine if Captain America would have stumbled without knowing that he was in uh the 21st century would have stumbled onto a movie set where you see uh, SS officers, right. you see Nazis. Okay, he would have probably come up with an immediate plan of attack and commenced to beating, you know, beating them up. And it's because he is a star-spangled man with a plan. Yeah, star-spangled man with a plan. You see, so uh, I guess you could say it was the same same type of situation there. Um, so, you know, I'm also in this this scene where a, uh, a gunman fires off an airsoft pistol, which looks quite real, and they add the visual and the, the visual effect of the gun, of obviously the muzzle flash, the gunpowder, burnt gunpowder, and the, the sound of a gunshot, of course, uh, in, in post-production, hence the saying, well, we're, we're do, we'll do it in post, you know, which, right. which are some, <laughs> some assistant directors and directors abuse this because post costs money. But anyway, not, not the discussion there. And I'm also... One of the one of the Irish thugs was a member of the McLaughlin crime family in a pub scene where the character McLaughlin, played by played by Malcolm McDowell, who obviously got to speak to, uh, as well as Jeremy Pittman from Entourage, he's also a member of the crime family. Uh, this part where myself and a few other a few other Irish thugs are singing two verses of an Irish drinking song which I do remember, you know, until Malcolm McDowell raises his hand and says, shut up. 
when his nemesis <laughs> enters the bar. And I won't give it away. I got to see it perform live. Now can McDowell unleashes some very wicked dialogue in his best theatrical fashion here. Okay. And so, so anyway, so essentially, you know, I was playing someone who was uh, opposed to integration of schools. And, you know, it's like the, the you could say the character I was in the movie wasn't just simply opposed to forced desegregation. Right. But this, this Irish crime family movie didn't want their kids going to school with black kids, period. Right. You know, because they, they were, they were bigoted. You see, I mean, to us, the many people these days, the concept of disliking someone and berating someone and hating someone just because they're from a culture that's different from yours, despite the fact that there's going to be this possibly aspects of the culture you actually like, but don't realize it or even think about it. You know, the concept is so alien to many people these days. Right. And also the concept was, uh, the concept was alien to some of those people back then of simply... Of simply, uh, of simply accepting people who are different and treating people who are different like human beings, you see. Okay. So that that was too, you see. Well. Um, so, and then, well, one of the problems with forcing things like this, I mean, just 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 forcing it at the end of the National Guard and the police, mm-hmm. is that people. People enjoy, you know, so much freedom in this country. When all of a sudden something is forced, there's this adverse reaction. Uh, and in this case, of course, the adverse reactions were obviously wrong. But it, it's the kind of thing, j- just like it's obviously wrong to, you know, the deal with the, the stuff that people said was being forced upon us during COVID. You know, obviously wrong to infect other people while not wearing a mask or COVID. But anyway, so so you know, it's a complicated situation there, right? But many people did not handle themselves the way they should have, obviously. Okay, well, wow, that that was a lot. You said a lot, so I'm gonna give everybody a few seconds to absorb that. You can rewind it if you want to, right? Sure. So. If you want to see the movie The Walk, though, it was unfortunately not released in theaters, right? Like it might have, it at first it looked like it was going to be, but then it wasn't, correct? It was listed on the AMC Stubbs app mm. until the day before its official release date, which I believe was June. Was it June 10th. or July? It was in June. June, okay. I believe it was June 10th. And so it kept saying coming soon. There was no poster on the app, but it was definitely that The Walk. Right. And I was thinking, well, Friday, myself and some friends can gather and we can go see this movie that I worked uh, over two weeks on. Right. And then all of a sudden, it disappeared from the Stubbs app. And it's it's available for purchase through a variety of streaming. Or, or rent. You can also rent uh, this movie. Rental is typically cheaper than, than uh, a digital download to own. 
but you can get this on Google Play, YouTube, uh, Voodoo. That's V U D U. So I think I think it's pronounced Voodoo. Is it Voodoo or Voodoo? I'm not sure. Amazon TV or Amazon Prime and Apple TV. So there's like five different places you can go stream this movie at. And I do encourage anybody who's not familiar with the struggle of desegregating schools in America to go watch this movie. Because, you know, again, this history is so important. It's important that we remember history so we don't repeat the same mistakes. Yes, and it's important to remember that these types of incidents were not unique to the American South. That's quite true because the movie that the walk takes place in Boston. Yes, it takes yes. place in Boston, and there was um, on my YouTube name. I was I was I was attacked in, under comments by a few people online. Comments underneath the trailer to the walk, and one of them told me that this movie was a lie because all of that stuff took place in the South. And obviously not true. Right. And, you know, you know, I got attacked a few times with the comments underneath the trail of the video. And, you know, I, st- I stand by what I said. And I did not attack anyone back. I pretty much took it the way anyone who's worked on a movie should take it. Because the fact of the matter is you're not going to make everybody happy, especially with a controversial movie like that. People are going to have their opinions. They're free to have their opinions. So, go ahead, attack away. I don't care. You're not, and, you're not gonna. You're not gonna bother me. And as a, and just as an addendum to what you were saying, a lot of those protesters, like the real life protesters, okay, a lot of those people are still alive. I want to point that out. These people, some of these people are still alive, and they're probably still horrible. Maybe some of them grew out of it. There is that possibility, especially the ones who were like very young. That's true. However, in the photographs that I was looking up for today's topic, which is, again, desegregation of mm-hmm. New Orleans public schools, right? Yeah. These were adults. These were grown people. Yeah, some, were, of, some, yeah. Of, some of whom moved to Mississippi, moved to the North Shore. St. Bernard Parish. St. Bernard Parish. Jefferson yes. Parish. So all these areas around New Orleans, right? Yes. That's what we call white flight. Yes. Yes. Yep. So Which my family did not take part in that. We simply stayed put and yeah. enjoyed life like we were supposed to. Yeah, same thing with, with my dad's parents. So my grandparents, they stayed in New Orleans as well. That's right, New Orleans, New Orleans East, yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. Close to Reed Boulevard, your grandmother lived until Katrina. Grandmother and your aunt lived there until Katrina. That's right. Yeah. Yes. So, this won't. This probably won't surprise you, Brian. But did you know that the fight to integrate public schools goes back to the Reconstruction era? It, it certainly does, because resistance to integration of African people to our society uh, began, you know, post-slavery Reconstruction. Exactly. Yeah. So all those decades, okay, and finally we get to 1954, which was the United States Supreme Court ruling in Brown versus Board of Education, which 
put in racial segregate. I'm sorry, said that racial seg- segregation in public schools was unconstitutional. That was 1954. But the conflict peaked in 1960 when the United States Circuit Judge J. Skelly Wright ordered, ordered that, that desegregation in New Orleans began on November 14th of that year. So it was six years after that initial ruling that New Orleans public schools were starting to be, to were ordered to be integrated. Okay. So before we get into the heart of the episode, I do need to mention that this 1960 ruling, again, it was decades in the making. You know, there's a long history of activism regarding education in New Orleans public schools that dates back to, of course, the civil rights, I'm sorry, the, uh, the reconstruction era. And before the Brown versus Board of Education, there was the Plessy, uh, Plessy versus Ferguson, which was part of the Jim Crow era. So they were fighting a lot. This is a big uphill battle that took decades. Yeah, so now, yes, Jim Crow, of course, was a system of laws that were aimed squarely, squarely at black people. Mm-hmm. And it was a new way to subjugate black people with the government's blessing after slavery. Yeah, a number of laws aimed squarely at black people, which I won't really go into a big discussion of this, include the, include the very first gun control laws in our country were Jim Crow laws because it was just unthinkable for any African survivors of slavery to have firearms to protect themselves. Well, that that's going to be a discussion, a topic that we get into at another time, because that's a very worthy discussion to have. Yes, and just, I mean, don't, don't forget, everyone, the very first gun control laws in the United States were Jim Crow laws. Yes. And these Jim Crow laws that were anti-gun laws were typically not enforced against the, you know, the Western immigrants. Right. You know, the white people. Yeah, because because if you're white, you're all right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. 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 Now, under Plessy versus Ferguson, the schools were supposed to be separate but equal. However, equality was not the reality. And for a long time, the black community in New Orleans demanded that that the, the equal part of Plessy was upheld. But, of course, that didn't really happen. So New Orleans activists Wil- Wilbert Aubert and Mrs. Leontine Luke called for a meeting of the Ninth Ward Civic and Improvement League, which was held on November the 6th, 1951, at the McCarty School for Black Students. And after years of protesting for equal schools and not having their requests met, the Ninth Ward Civic and Improvement League created an initiative to file a lawsuit against the Orleans Parish School Board. This led to the NAACP, which is the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, wanting to take further action and tackle segregation as a whole. On November the 5th, 1952, another activist, A.P. Turo, filed a new suit, which was Bush versus Orleans Parish School Board, with 21 sets of students as plaintiffs. And it was not until 1954, which was the Brown versus Board of Education, that called for the nationwide desegregation of all public schools. Now, on its face, okay, when 
you hear something like, okay, this was the thing that demanded that the, that desegregation end. Okay. You think, okay, great. This means everybody, you know, played music and it was all harmonious and everybody just went to school and everything was great. Right. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, sure. Sure. Of, of course. You know, and like the, you know, the white kids sat down with the black kids and, and, uh, you know, sang each other songs and they went to the dances together and they sat at the same tables and just ate lunch together and decided to learn from each other and everything and appreciate their differences. And, uh, well, huh. no, you believe that I've got some lovely beachfront property in Arizona. Um, so you're right. Oh, no, on Tatooine. Oh, okay. Okay. Tatooine. All right. So, following the original Brown decision, the Supreme Court in 1955 called for integration to take place with deliberate speed, which was interpreted differently by each side. Supporters of desegregation thought that it meant schools should be desegregated immediately, but opponents believed that leniency was allowed in the time frame for desegregation, which... Of course, if you start dragging this out, where does it end, is, is the question. What happens is governments that don't want to be told, as in like state or parish governments or, or county governments, uh, who feel they're being, they're being pushed around, will of course drag their feet and not respect any decisions by any court until they are absolutely forced to. And this, this happens often. Uh, uh, it's, well, I, okay, I don't want to go into any examples right now because the <laughs> biggest example I can think of right now was just a, another discussion that I might go off on a tangent on uh, today. <laughs> okay, well, before we get into the rest of it and before you go off on another tangent, we're going to take a break and hear from our sponsor. So, Louisiana Judge Jay Skelly Wright's ruling was handed down on February the 5th, 1956. The ruling ordered that Orleans Parish School Board create an integration plan for all public schools, but a senator at the time who was, was named William M. Raynock and the Louisiana State Legislature ordered all public schools to maintain segregation laws. So, you see, they're also getting resistance from the politicians, from the people who are supposed to listen to these rulings and uphold them. Yes. I mean, it's not supposed to be mob rule. Right. Okay. It's supposed to be the rule of law and not the rule of men, as that's a, you know, a legal phrase that there's a form of it that appears on top of the the Orleans Parish Courthouse on Tulane Avenue. Exactly. The legislature also passed a bill allowing them to declare public schools as either white or colored. So they're still trying to Jim Crow without really Jim Crow. That's, yes. That sounds like well, a yeah. yeah. You can change the name, but it still is the same thing. It's a horse of, of a course. different color. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's that's right. It's still a horse, even though it's a different color. That's right. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So once again, local activists went to work. 
They managed to get the Supreme Court to uphold Judge Wright's ruling. However, the state legislature did not want to back down. The board was convinced that if it delayed the plan until after the start of the school year, the students would not transfer after they were already comfortable at the school that they were attending. The delay would also allow enough time for the board and the legislature to create a plan that would create a law allowing them to decide where a child could and could not attend school. Do you believe this? That's, that, that's terrible. Yeah, it, it's, it's the same thing. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's an attempt to continue so-called, you know, separate but equal. Right. So they continued to delay the deadline for as long as possible, and they kept ignoring the integration order. The NAACP demanded that Judge Wright enforce his ruling, and he tried, but the school board kept pushing back the deadline. The school board also refused to come up with an integration plan, so the judge, Judge Wright, had to make his own integration plan. Which is typically not good, okay? You don't want... We've, there's been several examples of this. You don't want a judge to have to leave the scope of his own expertise mm-hmm. and come up with a plan for your bureaucracy all because you, you refuse to do it yourself. So what you're going to end up with is something worse for your bureaucracy than what you could have come up with on your own. But, of course, you know, these... These bigots wouldn't let any 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 wouldn't let logic get in the way, you know. Oh, logic and facts! How dare you? <laughs> so, ju- the judge's plan allowed children to transfer schools and for their parents to choose any of the former white or black schools closest to their homes. Now, the plan for integration only applied to first grade students. And the reason, his reasoning for this was because the first grade students were the highest percentage of black students. Ah, oh, yes, okay. of course. Yes, that, that's what a brilliant way to obfuscate the implementate the so-called implementation. Exactly, because this meant that older students could not integrate. So like if you're a junior in high school, then you, if you're a black student and a junior in high school, you did not get to go into a high school for white kids to finish out your senior year, for example. Which maybe in a way, I mean, you could debate this all day long if this was a good thing or a bad thing, but maybe the older you are, maybe the more difficult it would have been. Possibly, although the comparison that I kind of liken this to, like in my personal experience, I spent a year at, Abr- at Abramson High School in New Orleans East, which, which is a district school. Of course, this is all pre-Petrina. And I but met- this was also after integration. And in fact, right, right. when you went to school, this was the next generation of integrated students, right? Yeah, the, yeah. The, there, were some, there was some rigid, residual animosity and hostility still existing at Abramson High School except that it became even more complicated because when I went to Abramson that year, there was a large number of Vietnamese students whose families had fled from South Vietnam. And this was in the wake of the Vietnam War, right? Yeah, in the the wake of the Vietnam War. And then so there were were racial-based incidents at Abramson High School. 
uh, even more, be, you know, because of the Vietnamese students being there. And students, once again, history repeating itself, people not wanting, people rejecting Vietnamese American culture, of course. Uh, so, but anyway, the reason why I'm making this comparison, my own experience, is that uh, I managed to get into Eleanor McMain Magnet uh, School, which at the time was considered to be the second best school in the New Orleans public school system, being a magnet school. It's located in Nashville and South Claiborne, Uptown. Uh, so uh, imagine if I would have been denied the right to go to a magnet school based upon my merit uh, for being white. So in other words, like, like you would have the grades and all the other requirements to get, to get to that school, except if you're not the right color, you wouldn't get in. That's the only thing holding you back, right? Right. Yeah. Right. And, and I, and I would have stayed at Abramson and it would have, it would have been all right. But I mean, quite frankly, a magnet school is better than a district school. So imagine this district, this diff, this difference back then. There were students who obviously wanted to go at least graduate from a better school. Right. But were denied this simply by virtue of the color of their skin and their African American culture. Right. You see. So it, it was discrimination then. And for my generation, if it would have still existed in any way, shape, or form, it would have been discrimination then as well. Right. And, you know, getting into the easiest way to get into McMaine was having good results on the Ben Franklin test. Ben Franklin being the number one magnet school in the Orleans Parish School System, which it still is. Of course, Ben Franklin have a waiting list. And, you know, if you got the Ben Franklin waiting list, you typically get to go to McMaine. But anyway, different discussion. So <laughs> the Orleans public schools I came up in. You were allowed to go to the school of your choice based upon merit. Right. Essentially. So for, for me growing up is a little bit different because, you know, my parents, when they got married, they did move to one of those white flight areas. Okay. That's where I grew up. And there were not many black children that I went to school with at all. It was mainly white. We had... I mean, I could probably count on one hand the amount of black kids I went to school with. There was a couple of Vietnamese students that I went to school with as well. And this was throughout like all, you know, elementary school, middle school, high school. Okay. So like I grew up in a very white area. So like my school experience with that was a bit different than yours. And I would, and it's only been in recent years that the area that I grew up in has become more diverse, but it's still majority white. Well, it has, it has gotten better yes. in St. Bernard Parish. I mean, there are African-American corrections officers working the jail. There are African-American sheriff's deputies working right. in St. Bernard Parish. Teachers teaching. Yeah. Yeah. And it's pretty much no longer the case right that although it has happened here and there whereas someone you know someone who rolls into st bernard parish with the wrong color 
is routinely harassed. It's no longer routine over there. No, it's not as bad as it was. No. It used to be pretty bad when I was growing up, though. If you were walking down my street and if you were the, if you were black, you were suspicious. I mean, you know, my, my point is that these, these um, discriminations, these biases. Yeah, hence the, the difference between where you grew up and I grew up. Where yes. I grew up, a black person of any age walking down my street was routine. Exactly. So, you know, we grew up in very different, in, in very different areas, but, but Orleans and St. Bernard are right next to each other. That's the thing that, that's so wild about it to me is how different these two areas are. Yes, I, and funny thing is, I never set foot in St. Bernard Parish until I needed to uh, learn, you know, get a gun safety class and learn how to shoot. Right. At the... It was the St. Bernard Indoor Shooting Center in that little town called Araby in St. Bernard, you know. All right. Now, but now let's get back to the heart of the episode, shall we? So the school board delayed the deadline for as long as possible. Okay. So despite the backlash from certain people at the judge's decision, Save Our Schools and the Committee for Public Education called for the integration plan to be pushed forward. When it came time to allow students to apply to transfer schools, the school board, surprise, surprise, made it as difficult as possible. They created very specific criteria such as availability of transportation and intelligence testing. Oh, yes. okay. Oh, all right. Which made it almost impossible for black students to transfer schools. Of all those potential students, only five black girls fit the criteria for transferring. So to delay the integration of the schools even further, the school superintendent at the time, James F. Redmond, ordered the principals of the two integrated public schools to close their schools on Monday, November the 14th. Huh. Now, this plan was so that they, they could give time for the governor, who was at the time was Jimmy Davis, and the legislature to be able to propose 30 bills that would make integration illegal, even though Judge Wright had already declared most of those bills unconstitutional. Oh, what? Louisiana passed laws that are already unconstitutional before they're even voted on. Wow. Oh, I know, right? Hmm. Never happens. Less than 24 hours later, the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit did, in fact, rule all those bills unconstitutional. So on November 14th, the school system had officially been desegregated. So the girls who were selected to integrate, uh, only four actually decided to transfer. Leona Tate, Tessie Provost, and Gail Etine attended McDonough. Number, McDonough. McDonough number 19, but one little girl named Ruby Bridges attended William Franz Elementary School. The girls were escorted to and from school by United States Marshals. They were met by a large crowd of angry protesters. Of course. As word spread, as word spread that this, of which schools were chosen for integration, more people joined the protest. White parents began picking up their children, and a group formed to begin chanting segregation forever. 
And of course, they also said other vile things, which I will not repeat on this podcast. They also cheered for every white student who left school that day. Ruby Bridges was the first child to, to officially integrate the schools. She was the only one assigned to William France Elementary School, and her father was initially reluctant. But her mother felt strongly that the move was needed not only to give her own daughter a better education, but to take the step forward for all African-American children. And her mother finally convinced her father to let her go to the school. You know that Ruby Bridges was only, keep this in mind, she was only six years old. She had no idea what was going on. She had no idea of this battle that it took to even get her in this position. So she describes that day as driving up, I could see the crowd, but living in New Orleans, I actually thought it was Mardi Gras. There was a large crowd of people outside the school and they were throwing things and shouting and that sort of stuff goes on in New Orleans at Mardi Gras. Yeah, that, that, that sounds so much like the way a six-year-old would see it. Um, like, like, for example, like when I was six years old, one of the shows I watched was uh, the, the, the TV show SWAT. Okay. Right. And as a six-year-old, every time I saw a UPS truck, I thought it was a SWAT van. <laughs> so... So, you know, I remember just how, just how really simplistic the world seems. Right. And whereas something that you're, that's associated with you, that you have contact with so much, or you'll just mistaken something else out in public for it. And I probably would have thought the same thing since I had all, I had already gone to my first Mardi Gras parade. Right. Uh, at that age. Now, the first day of school... Ruby and her mother spent the entire day in the principal's office as the chaos of the school prevented them moving to a classroom. On the second day, however, a white student broke the boycott and entered the school when a 34-year-old Methodist minister named Lloyd Anderson Foreman walked his five-year-old daughter named Pam through the angry mob saying, I simply want the privilege of taking my child to school. And a few days later, other white parents began bringing their children back to school, and the protests began to subside. All the teachers, except for one, refused to teach, to teach while a black child was enrolled. So Barbara Henry from Boston, Massachusetts, taught little Ruby Bridges one-on-one. There was no other kids in her class. Well, it's fortunate for her that she had, she had one-on-one attention, although... The reason for it. It's pretty sad. Yeah. Pretty sad. It's pretty sad. Had no idea why it was like that. Had no idea why she couldn't associate with the other kids. And she just hadn't been living in this world long enough to know what was going on, which is both good and bad. Right. If if some if some of those other white kids would have seen it the same way she did. Well, then, you know, without being, her minds being poisoned by well, their parents, then they could have gone to school together without a problem if, if you know, if certain parents hadn't, politicians, hadn't made things so, so hard. Exactly. And, you know, speaking of poison, one, one woman who was a protester would threaten to poison Ruby, Ruby's food. 
and another one held up a, held up a black baby doll in a coffin. And it was because of this, like Ruby was actually grew quite paranoid that she was in fact going to be poisoned. So she was bringing her own lunches to school. The Bridges family also suffered for, for this decision. Her father lost his job and the grocery store that the family shopped at would no longer let them shop there. And her parents, I'm sorry, her grandparents who were sharecroppers in Mississippi were turned off their land and Ruby's parents separated. It was hard and really hard. Think, think about this. I mean, because you want, you know, because one child who has no idea what's going on with all the, the enormity of the decision, because of, because of her, her whole family suffered and it's really terrible. And all because certain bigoted individuals didn't seem to understand that it takes more effort to hate people and move against them than it does to accept them. It costs zero dollars to be nice that is or to ignore things. That is correct. Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. So in, but in spite of, of the, of this hatred, some white families continued to send their children to William France and a neighbor, a neighbor provided Ruby's father with a new job and local people babysat and watched the bridges house as protectors. And they walked behind the federal marshal's car on the trips to school. So she had a kind of a neighborhood following, which I think is awesome. Yeah, it is. It, 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 it is great that there now, yeah, that there, there were quite a few people who did want to accept people who are from a, of a different skin color and from a different culture. Yes. You know, maybe. So the immaculate clothing that Ruby wore to school was gener generously donated as her parents would not have been able to afford the expensive outfits, which is also a, a beautiful thing to give a child a back to school wardrobe. That's very generous. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Now today, Ruby Bridges still lives in New Orleans. She's still alive. And she graduated from a desegregated high school and she worked as a travel agent and later became a full-time parent. She is the chair of the Ruby Bridges Foundation, which she form, formed in 1999 to promote the values of tolerance, respect, and appreciation of all differences. Describing the mission of the group, she says, racism is a grown-up disease and we must stop using our children to spread it. Yeah. 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 That's absolutely true. There's... At, at McMain, I was fortunate enough to go to school with children from a variety of cultures and a variety of countries. Right. Because one of the things I learned when I went to McMain about you know students from other countries immediately getting into the magnet schools mm -hmm. was simply because they had they actually had better educational systems. Right. In, you know, in their smaller countries. Well, you know? Um, like Mohammed Sakura, who was from uh, Jordan, his father was a diplomat, mm -hmm. and so you know I got to know someone from Jordan when right. I was in high, in high school. You know, just to name just to name one person. You know. Well, I think what what really helped me keep an open mind, even though I lived in a certain area, is that I read a lot. I still love to read. I still read a lot, 
but that's what I feel like really saved me because there are things written in books that you might never get to experience in real life. But sometimes you do get to experience things in real life that you do read about in books. But this is also why I feel like just reading is, is so important because it, it, could, it could expand your mind in a really good way. And oftentimes it is better to learn from other people's experiences through reading books instead of experiencing these things on your own. Or if you do wind up experiencing them on your own, perhaps you learn something about how to deal with it from people who already have. I recommend reading autobiographies especially. I mean, biographies are great, but an autobiography like somebody who's telling their own story from their own perspective and how they view the world is a hundred times better. It's, it's a very light, enlightening experience. And yes. there's, there's such a vast uh, variety of autobiographies out there to read and experience. Like it, it's, you know, it's fascinating to read an actor's autobiography. It's also fascinating to read to, a politician's autobiography. A politician's autobiography. Like, for example, just to name one, I read the, the uh, autobiography of uh, G. Gordon Liddy. Right. For example, and what fascinated me about that was it took you on this journey of a, a young man who idolized World War II heroes and entered the United States Army himself and, you know, tried to get over there for the Korean War to be part of the action and never made it over there. And his father was a prominent attorney in his area. Right. He becomes an attorney and, you know, he wants to be one of these noble heroes of society. So he winds up becoming a prosecutor at one point. And also another point, he's, he, he's an agent of the FBI. Right. And, and his autobiography is about how it all unravels after he winds up in the Nixon administration. Right, which it is a different topic for a right, different time. Right. But that's so, such a that, huge topic. That's one example of, of how eye-opening and enlightening yeah. An autobiography can be, you know, you can right. look at how, what other people did right and where their lives went wrong. Just, just, you know, just name one example. Yeah. Oh, and you know, we all mess up. Everybody messes yeah. up. Oh yeah. Everybody. Yeah. Right. Now when Hurricane Katrina damaged William France Elementary School, Ruby Bridges played a significant role in fighting for the school to remain open. And then in 2010, Bridges had a 50th year, year reunion at William France Elementary with Pam Foreman, who had been the first white child to break the boycott. So they're, so, so they're still in communication with each other. The moment of her being escorted to school was captured in a Norman Rockwell painting called The Problem, the Problem We All Live With. And the painting was displayed in the West Wing of the White House, just outside of the Oval Office from June through October of 2011. President Obama told her, I think it's fair to say if it hadn't been for you, I might not be here and we wouldn't be looking at this painting together. And of course, this topic would not be complete without mentioning that many white parents fled outside of Orleans Parish because of this. And... And while 
families like yours, you know, you, you stayed in Orleans Parish and you went to, you still went through the public school system, right? Uh, many parents sent their children to, to private schools. Yes. Now, it was high school when right. I entered the public school system. Ironically, it was because I got sick and tired of the all-white private school I was sent to in for elementary and junior high, okay, you know, being bullied, picked on numerous fights, you know, fighting back mainly in, in middle school, okay, I, got, I set my foot down and absolutely refused to go to this godforsaken place called Heritage Academy uh, for high school. And I was told, well, you're going to have to go to public school. And I figured, well, you know something? I, I, you know, we live in New Orleans anyway. You know, why should right. I keep going to school with a bunch of bigots in Jefferson Parish when I can go to school in New Orleans? And funny thing, uh, I could, I think I could count on one hand the number of fights I had in high school in Orleans Parish Public School. Uh, I can't tell you how many fights I got into. Yeah, middle and, school was, oh, was rough for me, too. That's where yeah. I definitely got into the most trouble. Yeah, middle yeah. middle school, I can't tell you how many fights I got into in, in middle school and elementary school. Right. You know, because I was in a school with, with a bunch of kids who just couldn't accept anybody who didn't want to march in lockstep as white Anglo-Saxon Protestant bigots. Not that all, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants are bigots, but in this case... Uh, they were. Yeah, they 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 definitely were some very some very cruel people. And in ninth grade, the student, my uh, teachers at Abramson wondered why I was so defensive about things. It was obvious because because of the way I was treated in an all white school. Yeah, you know. Now, of course, having a rough education system is not unique to New Orleans. I mean, every day. Hundreds of battles are fought over education throughout the world. So, this was just a, a, a this and this battle for desegregation. You know, when you think about it, it's it's only been about what about sixty something years since since that time, right? Yeah. So sixty, not even not even seventy years. I mean, so when you think about it. Those people who went through that, many of them are still alive. So, like, if you if you are a young person who listens to this podcast, ask your grandparents, ask the oldest person that you know what they remember about this time period. They might they probably have an answer. There were there were teachers in the school system in Orleans Parish, I'm pretty sure, who went through this. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. Uh, do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up? Well, I do. Uh, when I went through the Orleans Parish school system, I was well aware of the fact that education was there for everyone. Yes. At that time, you know, yes. this being the late this being the late eighties. Okay, it's, it was a matter of just going out there and and taking advantage of your opportunities, which apparently. I did to some extent, you know, because I, I went to a magnet school after spending a year in a district school, uh, which to Abramson's credit, they did have a system called AS, Advanced Studies, 
Right. Where, you know, you could have a similar curriculum. You, you know, you had to test academically to get into it. Uh, a similar curriculum to the magnet schools, which I was actually slated to start that in 10th grade if I, if I didn't get into McMaine, you see. Right. And, you know, when I was going through public school, yeah, these opportunities were available for everyone because race was not a criteria for it. Exactly. And, and I fully agree with you that education should be for everybody. This is why when, if you have a, next time that you go to vote, if there's some sort of bill that you need to vote on. Referendum. A referendum, something like that, to cut taxes from schools. Don't vote for it. No, no, don't don't do that. The the public schools very much need funding. Very much so. And public yes. school teachers are fighting an uphill battle. You know, my what my one of my one of my sisters is a school teacher, and several people that I went to school with decided to go on to become teachers themselves. And let me tell you, it's not easy for any of them. No, they, they believe in what they're doing. They're not there to collect the check and benefits, what benefits there are. Right. Uh, every teacher I've ever known believes in what they're doing and wants to have a positive effect on children and wants to teach children as best they can. And it is also entirely possible that you and I would not ha even have thought of doing this podcast if not for having some of the teachers that we had. Let's, yeah. put, it, let's put it like that too, huh? That That's true. I can never forget uh, Mrs. White. And I'll never forget Miss Buckley, so there's that. Yeah, Mrs. Yeah. White was my civics teacher. Yes. At Abramson High School. Yeah, well, Miss Buckley was a history teacher, and she loved history. She loved sharing history with us. She made sure that we got to watch movies in class that were historically accurate that... I never got to see in any other classroom except for that one time. So that's, you know, and I know some people are thinking, oh, historical movies. Believe it or not, historical movies are actually a good way to condense events for younger people. It's a great way to bring events to life. That too, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <sighs> well, Dear listeners, I really hope that you learned something today, and I hope that you all remember it going forward just how important it is to accept everybody and to not deny an education. Especially, you know, th this past week, uh, student loan debt forgiveness, which is very important. As many, you know, many people in my age group suffered because has suffered for years because of student loan debt they were told oh go to college and your and all your dreams will come true and you'll make enough money for everything based off this college degree and in many cases that's not happened yes educate for the well for the most part going to college needs to be about growth and enrichment I also think that colleges should be free. Like when we have free public schools, there should be free public colleges too. Yeah. 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 In, in, now, of course, there is education in, in, cer in certain fields, like people typically who go to school to become uh, engineers, just, mm -hmm. just name one thing. Surgeons. Okay. 
right, right. Uh, they're actually they're actually there to learn something to learn something specific that that's will, very specialized too. Right, that will allow them to uh, to do well for themselves, do something and do something they want to do at the same time. And could also benefit humanity as a whole. Right. I mean, and yeah. speaking of humanity, of course, you know, if, if you're going to go to school as a humanities, majoring in the humanities, chances are you should not do it by borrowing money money to do it because there's no big financial payoff. I mean, art school is like $100,000. And there's, there's rarely any payoff for that. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, as an artist... You know, like say a visual artist, if you were to make millions, I mean, it does happen, but it doesn't happen often enough. It, 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 right? is, a, it is a gamble. One of the yeah. reasons why, why a, an art school was a gamble is because you have to go into that art school already possessing a talent right. for it, whereas that talent is going to be groomed because an art school is not going to give you talent. Okay. Of course, it's going to make you better. It nurtures your talent. Yeah, it's going to nurture what talent you do have. Okay, you know, a, 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 a school generally is not going to make you into something you're not. It's just going to make you better at what you already are, as long as you apply yourself. You see, so that that's one thing to keep in mind when selecting a school for your children, selecting a school for yourself, for for yourself. Right. So it's all, it's all about continuing the learning process and growth and enrichment and possibly learning a skill. Exactly. Whereas, yes, you can go to school and learn a skill. Oh, yes, definitely. Sure. Mm -hmm. And you don't even necessarily have to go to a college for that. I mean, that's what the vocational schools are all about. Like, that's where you can learn to become an electrician, a plumber, a mechanic, all these very vital jobs because I mean we were talking about surgeons and um, what was the other thing you said engineers uh -huh. but also you know plumbers are important waste management people are important people who, who uh, uh, do uh, water treatment jobs that's important electricians are important plumbers all these all these jobs that are that are you know construction engineers. construction engineers yeah. everything it's all important yeah so, yeah, so in, in the end, all of this, all of this opposition towards letting fellow Americans who are just simply from a different part of the American culture uh, into your schools, uh, it was just, it was counter to the education process because learning to accept people and work with people who are different from you is part of the educational process. And it's also part of life, especially and actually, this is going to be my real final thoughts, and we're going to wrap up. You know, because, you know, I moved here to New Orleans when I was 19, 41 years old now. So I have a whole over two decades of experience of living in the city. And I'm going to tell you, like, living in a diverse area is probably one of the best decisions I ever made for myself. Because it's fun, it's interesting, and as an adult... That learning process, no matter if you go to college or vocational school or neither one of those things, your learning process as an adult should never stop. That is absolutely correct. And I'm proud to say I've always lived in New Orleans. The only exception was the time that I was in the Marine Corps. 
Right. And it was also good that in the Marine Corps, I was exposed to a variety of cultures. Mm-hmm. We united to always perform a common mission. And one of the, probably the most beautiful thing about serving in the Marine Corps was that uh, Marine, in, you know, in one platoon, in one company of troops, uh, we could sit down in private, in total privacy, and have very frank discussions with each other about our differences. And because we knew we couldn't really, you know, stay mad at each other or get terribly mad at each other because we always had a mission to perform. Uh, we, we, le- we learn a lot about each other. Exactly. And, and, and learn to work with each other. Exactly. Um, the only person that, that you should never feel okay working for is, is someone who bullies you. If you have a if you have a boss who bullies you or a coworker who bullies you, um, just try try to reconsider your your options. Maybe get a different job, make a complaint to HR, whatever it is you feel like you need to do to just get that to stop. Because if you're an adult, uh, not, not only you, you should not be a bully, but you also should not allow yourself to be bullied. Yeah, quite quite true, quite true. Yes. Uh, however, do not do a bad thing to end that bullying. Like, don't ba- basically us uh, try try to stay within the law. Yeah, yeah. Like that, there is a big difference between using a weapon you find in elementary school to fight off a bully, and doing this as an adult. Very, very, very big difference. As an adult, you end up in jail. Right. And, yeah. and, you know, violence does not. Now, in the right situation, yes, violence can protect you, but violence will not solve any problems. And it's interesting that you ended on that note, because in next week's episode, we are going to talk about one of the most disliked people in New Orleans, how and why he was a bully and why and how and why he met his demise over a neighborly feud. So until then, dear listeners, stay safe, be kind, remember that we're all human beings, and do not park next to vans. If it's dark, it's dangerous, and you feel unsafe, don't be there in the first place. And if you are talking to law enforcement in an official capacity, and you are not the witness to a crime or the victim of a crime, lawyer up.